Hello, Richard. This is Vivek Murthy. Hi, Dr. Murthy. Thank you so much uh, f- for joining for joining me. Um, I understand you've got a, a very short time, so maybe I should just kick off with some questions and, and just start, if that's okay by you. Uh, sure, yeah, well, however you'd like to do it. And let me just say I'm so happy that you're covering this topic, Richard, and I've read some of the, uh, the pieces that you've written in the past about it, so thank you for giving attention to it. Well, thank you for, for sparing the time, and it must be a particularly busy uh, for you a week before the new president's inauguration. Could you just, for the BMJ's readers, explain why your report was needed now? Why did you release this report now? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Well, I released the Surgeon General's report on alcohol, drugs, and health in November of 2016. This is the first Surgeon General's report on this topic. But I did so because addiction has become a crisis in America. We have nearly 21 million people who have a substance use disorder. It costs us over $442 billion a year. And that doesn't even measure the emotional cost of the illness. Uh, But despite that, we only have one in 10 people with a substance use disorder who actually gets treatment. And that's a a massive treatment gap that we have to close. You know, I've seen this problem up close as, uh, as a doctor practicing in Boston, Massachusetts for a number of years. And I saw many patients who came in with substance use disorders and just saw how it took a toll not just on them, uh, but on their families. And after I became Surgeon General, I had the chance to really see the problem on a much larger scale. Uh, Every community I went to uh, around America, I uh, I met people who were affected by uh, substance use disorders, either directly uh, or indirectly. So I issued the report as a, not just as a source of information for our country, but as a call to action. Uh, because if we don't address the crisis of addiction, uh, we're going to be losing more friends and family members over the years, and it will be costing us more as a nation. An, an interesting um, aspect of the, 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 the epidemic of prescription opioid m- misuse is this transition towards um, t- uh, using street drugs, and uh, the, you've seen um, outbreaks of HIV in rural localities. Can you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. We have a, uh, within the ad- larger addiction crisis, we have a particular problem with uh, prescription drugs uh, in the United States, and specifically with prescription painkillers uh, like opioids. Uh, we've seen the prescription opioid epidemic uh, feed into uh, what has become an even larger heroin epidemic. We've seen it contribute to the spread of HIV and hepatitis C uh, through the sharing of needles. And that's been a particular concern for us. It's why earlier in 2016, I I launched a campaign in the United States called the Turn the Tide Campaign, which was an initiative uh, focused on uh, practitioners, on doctors and nurse practitioners and uh, physician assistants and dentists, uh, where our intent was to work with uh, practitioners to sharpen prescribing practices so that we could treat pain more safely and effectively. Uh, This is recognizing that if we're really going to address not just the opiate crisis but addiction in America, we need the medical profession to be a key part of the solution. Uh, That means we need uh, clinicians trained in how to screen for, recognize, uh, and treat substance use disorders. We also need clinicians to be uh, out there advocating and speaking up for the needs of their patients, which often mean calling for more investment in treatment and in prevention programs. So is the problem that we're seeing at the moment in the United States then uh, all to be attributed to over-prescribing of uh, prescription opioids by doctors? Well, what we've seen uh, is that the prescription opioid crisis uh, really has been building uh, over the last few decades, but it began 
uh, with good intentions, uh, strangely enough. It began, began with an intention to uh, treat uh, pain uh, more effectively, recognizing that in some cases we, were, we had been under-treating pain. The problem is uh, that as a country, we urged uh, doctors and uh, nurse practitioners to be more aggressive about treating pain without giving them the tools or the training in how to do so safely and effectively. And the result is that we had uh, an increase in the treatment of pain that was appropriate, but also inappropriate prescribing as well. Uh, and that is part of what helped feed into the prescription opioid crisis that we have today. But the good news is that we are taking steps to address that. Uh, in addition to working with clinicians to sharpen prescribing practices, we've also as a country been investing more in prescription drug monitoring systems, which can help support clinicians in making decisions around uh, the prescribing of opioids. We've also been uh, investing in other sectors, uh, you know, such as law enforcement, and ensuring that uh, more and more first responders uh, are equipped with naloxone, which is a medication that rapidly reverses the effect of opioids, and now has been used many times to save lives uh, when uh, first responders show up uh, at the scene of an overdose. So while we are taking steps to, to you know, sharpen prescribing, to prevent overdoses, and to expand treatment programs with further investment, we still have a lot more to do because we are losing thousands and thousands of people each year uh, to prescription opioid and heroin overdoses. I understand you've written to uh, all doctors in the U.S. with uh, uh, evidence-based guidelines on opioid prescribing. Can you talk about that a bit? Absolutely. Earlier in 2016, I sent a letter uh, to 2.3 million uh, healthcare professionals, including doctors, dentists, uh, and nurse practitioners. And I did this because in order for us to address the, the opioid crisis in America, we do need the engagement of clinicians. Uh, clinicians have an important role that they can play uh, in, in addressing the epidemic, not just because of what they do in clinic uh, with their prescribing of these medications, uh, but they also have the ability to change and reframe how our country thinks about addiction. For far too long, addiction has been looked at as a character flaw or a moral failing. Uh, it's been looked at differently uh, from other illnesses like diabetes and heart disease uh, with more judgment, uh, with more, I would say, negative uh, perceptions. And the consequence of that uh, has been that many people have, who are suffering from addiction have not felt comfortable coming forward uh, and asking for help. And so as we think about how to address uh, the opioid crisis and the larger uh, addiction crisis in America, we need not just policy and programmatic solutions, but we also need a cultural shift. And I believe that clinicians can be an important part of all three aspects of the solution. That's why I wrote that letter to clinicians, because uh, we can no longer uh, wait for solutions to come to us. Uh, but as clinicians, we need to be on the leading edge of change. We need to be calling for the kind of change that our communities need and advocating strongly for our patients. And what about the, um, the pharmaceutical industry that profits from prescription opioids? Um, you know, completely legal marketing and lobbying activity has helped a, a pharma sell, oversell these drugs. Uh, is there a need for more restriction around this sort of activity? This is an important question about the role of uh, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, as well as, frankly, other non-health uh, health and non-health sectors. And what we, if we look back on the, the beginnings of the prescription opioid epidemic, what we see is that it was not just uh, a problem of not training clinicians in how to treat pain safely and effectively, but we also had aggressive marketing of opioid medications by pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and in some cases, uh, in many cases, that advertising was uh, done in ways that uh, did not fully 
uh, apprise uh, patients or clinicians about their risks that were involved. Uh, we're now paying the consequences of that uh, in the form of this larger epidemic. So I do believe that the pharmaceutical uh, industry has an important role that they need to step up and play in helping to address this epidemic uh, by supporting treatment programs, by investing in education and prevention, and by committing going forward uh, that we will be much more responsible about how we market these drugs. You know, it has concerned me uh, for many years, uh, particularly during my practice of medicine, uh, that uh, you know, if you are if you are a patient in the United States, you are uh, experience you know in media is awash with ads from pharmaceutical companies telling you what, what kind of medications you should buy, and while people should have access to all the information they want, uh, sometimes uh, these advertisements can make uh, medications seem a lot more attractive uh, than they uh, than they really are, and they can also make them seem a lot less harmful uh, than they really are, and that presents uh, real problems for clinicians who then end up having to. Uh, deal with um, you know some of the misinformation that's conveyed to patients through uh, through ads and through uh, marketing campaigns uh, because you know every patient has to make uh, a decision individually with their clinician about whether medication is right for them uh, and it's hard to do that in a 15 or 30 second ad spot that targets millions of of consumers at the same time uh, so we do have challenges when it comes to responsible uh, marketing of and advertising of medications. Uh, but this is also why I believe it's so important for clinicians to step up and to be uh, advocates and voices uh, for their patients. We need to ensure that our patients are getting accurate, timely information uh, and that they can use this information to make good decisions about their health. Thank you. And um, Just moving on a little, I, I understand that you're at the, the special session of the United Nations General Assembly on the world drug problem in April, the UNGAS. Uh, did it give you optimism? I did have the the privilege of being at the United States Special Session, and you know it, it was very inspiring and uplifting because of what I saw were countries uh, uh, all around the globe uh, who have been not just experiencing challenges with addiction, but more importantly, uh, they are coming together to now finally address it as a public health problem, and that's a piece that was uh, genuinely inspiring. For far too long, we have had a war on drugs, not just in the United States, but in many countries around the world. Uh, and sadly, that war on drugs turned into a war on the people who use drugs. What we have realized uh, through through hard lessons uh, is that this is a public health problem that requires a public health solution. That means uh, connecting people to treatment. Uh, it means uh, ensuring that we eradicate the unfortunate stigma around addiction. And the good news is that while addiction has been a problem for hundreds of years, what's different now is that we now have evidence-based treatment strategies that work. Uh, the challenge is ensuring that we can get these to the people who need them. It, um, it seemed that there was a, a sea change in in opinion at the the UNGAS compared with the the UN meeting on or General Assembly on drugs uh, previously. Um, there was much talk about how the war on drugs had failed, and and lots of pointing to uh, jurisdictions like Portugal, where there's uh, emerging evidence that treating drug possession. Uh, 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 purely as a public health issue, uh, not as not as a criminal matter, um, ha- has led to um, health benefits. Uh, um, indeed, the, the US now has jurisdictions with regulated legal markets in some drugs, and the BMJ has just called for the cautious appraisal of evidence coming from jurisdictions where there's decriminalisation, regulated markets. Your re- your recent report though makes very little 
mention of the criminalization of drug users. What, why is that? Well, what we do say in the report, uh, and what I have said uh, as I have traveled around our country talking about the report, uh, is that we do need to shift from a criminal justice approach uh, to more of a public health approach. Uh, there, we've been skewed heavily uh, to the, the criminal justice approach uh, to drugs, but we've seen progress when we start to shift uh, to that public health approach. For example, we have uh, a growing number of drug courts uh, here in the United States, which have been uh, connecting uh, people who uh, are suffering from addiction and who are engaged in, in nonviolent uh, you know, offenses uh, to treatment uh, as an alternative to incarceration. And what has been really interesting about uh, these programs uh, is that they have been successful uh, in reducing drug use, uh, incarceration, and recidivism. Uh, and in, in, on the whole, when we do this, not only do people uh, do better, but uh, the taxpayers uh, pay less money uh, in terms of criminal justice system costs and healthcare costs. Uh, so we, we also have programs that have uh, come up on a local level, uh, which are taking this approach. And uh, in the city of Gloucester in Massachusetts, uh, for example, we have a program where the local uh, police department uh, dis uh, made a decision that they would not charge any person uh, with addiction if the person presented themselves to the police department and asked for help to get into treatment. Uh, and that has uh, been a very successful program that has enabled many people to now come forward and get the help they need, which is ultimately uh, what we want. It's also important to note that here in the United States, people who step forward uh, to their health care providers or to a treatment program are generally not subject to legal interventions. Uh, solely based on their drug use, uh, and providers have no legal duty to report to law enforcement or other regulatory bodies uh, about patients who are using substances. More often than not, the barriers we see that prevent people from coming forward and asking for help from their providers have to do with them either not having insurance, not having awareness that help is available, uh, or fearing that they will be judged by their friends, their family, uh, by their employer, or even by their healthcare provider uh, if it becomes known that they're struggling with addiction. So we're increasingly seeing law enforcement here uh, focused on the people distributing drugs and drug organizations and, uh, and less on people who are using substances where, while we're trying to, in fact, connect those folks uh, much more to treatment. And that's why in the report I also uh, state very clearly that while we need all sectors involved uh, in addressing substance use, I, I pay particular attention to the law enforcement sector because we have seen that when law enforcement is engaged, when they shift toward that public health approach, when, they, when uh, police officers and other first responders are equipped with naloxone, when they're helping to connect uh, folks to treatment uh, instead of to, uh, to jails, uh, then everyone does better. Uh, taxpayers pay less. Uh, people's health is, uh, is better off. And it's a more satisfying experience for public health and law enforcement officials altogether. So this, this kind of move away from uh, criminal justice response towards public health response is already happening in the States. It's happening already in the United States, but we, in the report, we call for that to be accelerated uh, because while we have now drug courts, uh, we in fact more than 3,400 drug courts in operation across the United States, which serve more than 55,000 uh, people annually, uh, we know that that's uh, just a portion uh, of the uh, 1 million uh, offenders with substance use disorders who pass through the United States criminal justice system each year. Uh, so we have more to do, but the good news is that we're not starting from scratch. We've demonstrated that these drug courts work. Um, we have uh, have been investing in them uh, from the federal side as well, and now we need to accelerate uh, that process. Uh, and, you know, to, to BMJ readers uh, who might be practicing medicine or in research and who are thinking about what role they can play in this effort, I, I want to emphasize that, uh, that clinicians 
they have an extraordinarily important role in helping shift uh, the United States and, and countries around the world and the approach that they take uh, by virtue of the fact that clinicians are caring for patients and have a window into their experiences. Uh, they have a valuable, valuable uh, input to give uh, to policymakers and to other decision makers. Um, what I find more often than not, though, uh, is that clinicians are reluctant uh, to step up in the public square and to make their views known. Uh, they're reluctant to, to meet with policymakers and help them understand what it is that our patients actually need in terms of systems change. You mean we need to do more of that. Specifically around drug, drug misuse disorders, you mean? I mean, I mean specifically around addiction, but even more broadly uh, when it comes to uh, the healthcare needs of the population. Uh, clinicians are often incredibly dedicated to providing care one-on-one uh, -on -one in the clinic. Um, it's, uh, and, and I think that is, uh, that's the heart of medicine. That's uh, what drew me to the medical profession. It's what uh, I treasure uh, deeply uh, about being in the profession is having colleagues who are so value-driven uh, and committed to caring for patients. Uh, but what, what we've seen more and more is that uh, if we only operate in the clinics and if we don't uh, have a larger voice in the public square to call for changes to our healthcare system, uh, then we're not going to be able to help our patients nearly as much as they need. Uh, and that's why uh, you know, I've called upon clinicians uh, to step up and to use their extraordinarily valuable uh, wealth of experience with patients uh, to help advocate uh, for what they need in the longer term. And this, this feeds into a big theme of your report, which is about the stigma associated with drug use disorders, uh, which is one reason that people are deterred from um, seeking help. You, you say that we need, uh, in the state, a cultural shift in how we think about addiction so that it's not viewed as a moral failing but a, cr a chronic illness like heart disease, diabetes and cancer. Uh, again, it just brings me back to the to the sort of criminal aspect um, of dr of drug misuse, though, because it's only in substance use disorders and n none of those other chronic diseases you mentioned where you 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 might get a criminal record. I is it possible to treat drug dependency as a public health issue, as you advocate, w when it's also punishable in law? Well, it, it's a good question, but but what we've seen here in the United States is that. Uh, is that we've actually been able to make uh, progress on shifting toward that public health approach uh, without necessarily, uh, for example, legalizing drugs. That has not been a, a requirement for us to shift toward a more public health approach. Uh, you know, people who, who come uh, to their doctors and their nurses or who approach uh, treatment programs and ask for help, uh, they are generally not subject uh, to legal intervention. Uh, and, and you know, as I've shared with, with folks around our country, the, the barriers uh, to people coming forward and asking for help are more often than not the unfortunate stigma uh, around uh, addiction and also uh, challenges people have with lack of health insurance uh, or not understanding uh, how the system works so that there's treatment available. Uh, I am struck often uh, when I travel around the United States by not just the number of people I meet who are uh, suffering from addiction, but by how many of them don't realize that we have evidence-based treatment that actually works. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we issued this report, is that we wanted people to understand that we do, in fact, have treatment. There are also a lot of misconceptions in the United States about uh, medication-assisted treatment programs for opioid use disorders, programs like methadone uh, and buprenorphine programs and even naltrexone-related uh, programs. Uh, sometimes people think that these medications are, uh, are unproven and they're dangerous and they cause more harm uh, than the heroin or prescription opioids themselves. Uh, but in order to eradicate some of these misconceptions, uh, you know, we need uh, a, 
we need a dedicated and focused education campaign, and that was part of the intent of, of releasing this report. So if we want to take a public health approach, uh, which is our intent here in the United States, uh, a journey that we've already started, uh, then we need to accelerate our efforts on education. We need to expand the integration of, uh, of prevention and treatment into the criminal justice system uh, and into our education system. We need our clinicians uh, trained in how to screen, diagnose, and treat. But we also need our healthcare systems in the United States to integrate uh, the treatment of addiction uh, in with traditional Medicare, uh, medical care. And we have to work on the cultural shift, uh, which uh, will push all of us to think differently uh, about addiction and see it not as uh, that character flaw, but uh, really as a disease just like any other, like diabetes uh, or heart disease. And what about uh, socioeconomic factors and inequalities, um, you know, poverty, joblessness, homelessness, lack of education and so on? How do these uh, uh, factors influence drug misuse disorders? Well, I'm glad that you asked because what we have seen with not just addiction but with many other chronic diseases uh, and with violence is that, uh, that there, are, there are many determinants outside of whether you have health insurance uh, that impact uh, one's susceptibility to these illnesses. And some of these uh, social determinants, particularly poverty, uh, are very important factors. And so as we think about not only how to address addiction but how to address chronic disease more broadly in the United States, uh, we are increasingly shifting toward that approach of addressing uh, social determinants. Uh, and that's an approach that uh, demands that we understand that uh, transportation and housing uh, and economic policy as it relates to poverty, uh, and these are all uh, incredibly important components along with education of influencing uh, people's health risks and ultimately their health outcomes. What that means is that all of these sectors have an important role to play. When we think about addiction specifically, some of the most effective prevention programs, uh, including prevention programs that save up to $64 for every $1 we invest in them, some of these are programs that are based in schools, uh, which means that we need educators uh, to be a part of the solution and part of the a team that's advocating uh, for these programs. Um, we also know that faith leaders uh, can be an incredibly important role and helping to shift uh, how people think about addiction and creating environments where people have permission to talk about uh, their illness and ask for help. So if we think broadly about the root causes of illness, we realize that the majority of what contributes to illness is not uh, what happens in hospitals and in medical clinics. It's the factors that are related to one's community. Uh, and unless, that's why we have to engage uh, the non-health sectors uh, in addressing uh, and not just addiction, but chronic illness more broadly. Uh, and that's really one of my uh, main areas of interest and focus uh, as Surgeon General. It's to uh, focus on prevention, to focus on health equity, ensuring that the benefits of prevention and treatment accrue to all sectors of society. And then to do both of these by engaging both the health sector and the non-health sector, recognizing that we all have an important role to play in making our country healthier. Do you think uh, addiction is going to be a priority for Donald Trump once he takes office? What we've seen in the United States is that addiction has been a bipartisan issue. Uh, it's been uh, an issue that Democrats and Republicans uh, very much care about. 
And I expect that that will continue uh, because addiction is not a disease that discriminates. Uh, it's one that uh, has been uh, affecting rich and poor, uh, people in urban and rural areas. It's been affecting people of all racial and ethnic groups uh, and certainly people of all political persuasions. And people have come to recognize that. Uh, we've seen uh, a great deal of coverage in the media about our challenges of addiction, especially in, in the last several years. Uh, we've seen people come together uh, at legislative levels, both at the state and, and federal level here in the United States, to help support and fund uh, treatment programs. Uh, the key going forward is that we need to continue and build on this momentum. Uh, I believe we also have to give more uh, attention on the prevention side as well so that we are uh, working more upstream and, uh, and reducing the need for treatment uh, in the longer term. Uh, but I'm encouraged by the bipartisan support that I've seen for addressing addiction in America. Would the repeal of the Affordable Care Act have an impact on addiction services? I think what we have to keep in mind with the Affordable Care Act is that one of the key benefits of the ACA was to expand coverage. We have over 20 million people uh, who have received coverage uh, as a result uh, of the ACA, and uh, coverage is important uh, to being able to get treatment of all kinds, but including for substance use disorders. So as we go forward uh, and, and think about uh, shifts to the ACA uh, and ideally improvements uh, to the ACA, uh, what we have to make sure we do is that we don't lose ground when it comes to coverage. Uh, and in fact, as much progress as we've made on the coverage front to the ACA, we still do in fact have millions of people who are uh, still in need of health insurance coverage. So my hope is that going forward, we will not only safeguard the coverage that we have, but that we will continue to actually expand on that. That's going to be essential uh, for getting people with addiction the treatment that they need. And what other barriers are there to uh, to realizing the, all the recommendations in your report? I understand that there was a uh, is it the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act uh, uh, was was passed in 2016 as well? But there were some questions about whether it would be funded. Is 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 the money all there to make to make your dreams come true? Well, that's a great question. Money is certainly an important piece of expanding uh, the treatment programs in particular. Uh, while the uh, while the CARA bill uh, to which you referred earlier, uh, you know, had a lot of helpful provisions, we didn't have as, as much of the funding as we needed. But the good news uh, is that in legislation passed uh, at the end of 2016, uh, referred to as the Cures Bill, uh, there was in fact a uh, billion dollars uh, worth of funding uh, to help address the opioid epidemic, a significant portion of which uh, it will help us to expand treatment. So that's definitely a step in the right direction. Uh, but as I, you know, have been have been saying, we this is not a good step forward, but it's not uh, enough, uh, and we can't stop here uh, because we need to continue to expand uh, our investment in treatment. We have to expand uh, the cross-sector partnerships uh, that we've started to see in different parts of the country, so that law enforcement and education and employers are engaged in this effort. Uh, and we also have to really invest on the on the upstream prevention uh, side of things as well. Uh, we all know that it's better to prevent. Uh, substance use disorders and addiction rather than to get to them and to then treat them. Um, but, you know, as a country, uh, we have tended uh, to invest uh, in a somewhat imbalanced way when it comes to prevention and treatment. We've uh, put a lot more energy and funds and, and time into the treatment side of the equation. And for that reason, we have, um, you know, some of the best tech medical technology and, uh, and cures and treatments in the world. Uh, but we don't do nearly as well on the prevention side. So I think this is our opportunity uh, to, to correct that and to, to create a more balanced approach to prevention and treatment. Uh, and that's part of what I will be uh, continuing to call for as Surgeon General. 
That's great. Your, your report draws a comparison with the seminal Surgeon General's report on tobacco published in 1964, which is credited with introducing the era of tobacco control and saving millions of lives. What makes you think your report will have similar impact, Dr Murthy? Well, I'll leave it up to history to, to determine whether our uh, current report has as much impact as the 1964 report. But I, what I will tell you is that uh, Surgeon General reports in our country have a, a long history of helping to bring the public's attention to critical health care issues uh, when it matters the most. The 1964 report uh, on tobacco uh, helped to kick off a half century's worth uh, of activity on tobacco control that helped reduce smoking rates in the United States from uh, 42% uh, to now just around 15, 16%. Uh, that's still, uh, you know, a heavy burden of, of, of smoking and smoking-related disease because we lose still nearly half a million people uh, from tobacco-related disease each year. Uh, but that's a lot of progress uh, that we've made. When it comes to uh, the, the addiction report, the reason I released this report, the reason, um, uh, you know, I did it uh, despite the fact that we haven't had a report on this topic before is because uh, this addiction has become a crisis, uh, and we uh, need to call the country uh, to action uh, to address it. Uh, th this report, the way I think about Surgeon General's report, is that these are more than a collection of papers uh, that uh, you need a PhD to read. Uh, these are reports are publications that have information that uh, is accessible to a broad swath uh, of the population, but also that have concrete actions uh, that each sector can take uh, to address uh, the crisis. And the way we think about these reports is that they're living documents. So over the next uh, year, uh, our plan is to take this report on the road uh, to meet with uh, people and families who are impacted by addiction around the country, but also bring together uh, healthcare professionals, law enforcement, educators, policymakers, and families uh, so that we can build the kind of coalitions that we need locally and ultimately take on the addiction crisis. Uh, so my hope is that this report won't just uh, end uh, with its publication, but that this will be the beginning uh, of a larger uh, wave of change that we have in how we think about addiction and ultimately how we prevent and treat it. Well, we'll be watching. Uh, do you have any final words for the BMJ's readers in the United States and, and worldwide? Well, to, to, to all the, the BMJ readers uh, who are clinicians, who are researchers, who are public health experts and uh, and people who just care deeply uh, about medicine and public health. Uh, I, I just want to say thank you uh, for your interest and your, your passion uh, for health. Uh, this is a time, uh, not just for the United States, but for the world, where we are facing uh, new waves of disease and we are facing large waves of old illnesses. Uh, and this is a challenge that is straining many of our public health infrastructures, our clinical care systems, uh, and our economies, uh, given uh, the, the staggering impact of the healthcare costs. Uh, but I do believe uh, that our greatest chance of overcoming uh, th these, uh, these challenges when it comes to health uh, do lie uh, in, the, the, our, you know, in their, our ability to really mobilize uh, people across the country to take an active role uh, in addressing illness. Uh, and that means when it comes to clinicians that we have to not only think about what we do in our hospitals and our clinics, but we also have to think about the fact that we have uh, been, been given uh, the opportunity to have a voice uh, that goes beyond uh, our workplace, uh, a voice that is often uh, listened to and given consideration in the public square. 
Uh, and when I think about uh, the role uh, of doctors and nurses and other clinicians in particular, I think that our role is not just to care for the individual patient, uh, which is essential, but it's also to care for the entire community. Uh, and the more we're able to embrace that role, the more we're able to not only care for our individual patients, but advocate for system changes that will serve them and their families uh, for a lifetime, uh, the more we'll be able uh, to overcome some of the great healthcare challenges that we face. Uh, so I want to leave you with that, but, uh, but I, I feel optimistic uh, about our, our future because I see uh, more and more uh, researchers and clinicians across the country who want to play that larger role, who are already stepping up to do so, and who are helping create change on the ground as a result. Dr. Murthy, Dr. Vivek Murthy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Richard. It was really great to be with you. Yeah, fascinating talking to you. Thank you. Sure. Bye. Bye.